Musicians, we really appreciate your ministry among us. We also appreciate the extra Saturday morning rehearsals that come as the price to pay of playing on Sunday morning, right? Open your Bibles to John chapter 15, please. I was reminded again this week about the world's hatred of Christianity. That's been our topic for the last two weeks here out of John 15. We'll be finishing this morning this section. But again this week I was reminded of the reality that the world is hostile to Christ and those who are his followers. I was reading a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs, their May issue, and I clipped out just a little section. Let me share it with you. It's hard for us, I think, sitting here in America, May the 22nd or whatever it is. What is today? The 22nd? That's good. My birthday's coming soon. Oh, forget that. It's uh, May the 22nd, 2005. We're sitting here in America, the pews are comfortable, the building is air-conditioned, the lighting is good. You all came here this morning, you didn't think at all when you got up about the possibility that there might be some kind of harassment that would come upon you because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ and your desire to worship Him publicly, together with your, with your fellow believers. But that's not true all over the world. Just listen here. It says, Chinese house churches are growing at a remarkable rate in spite of communist efforts to control and kill the church. The persecution has become a purifying fire, bringing forth true gold in the lives of believers across China. Each of the seven largest Christian house church networks outnumbers all denominations in America except for Catholics and Southern Baptists. Desperately, the Religious Affairs Bureau uses all its power in an attempt to domesticate religion. The authorities realize that this is the best way to control the spread of the gospel, yet appear civilized to the West. McManus writes, quote, It is true that the enemy will essentially leave you alone if you are domesticated. He will not waste his energy destroying a civilized religion. If anything, he uses his energy to promote such activity. Religion can be one of the surest places to keep us from God. When our faith becomes refined, it is no longer dangerous to the dark kingdom. Close quote. The Christians of China who choose to suffer in following Christ so they may evangelize are willing to endure hatred because of his love. Quote, the believer's hearts and faith are strengthened by the persecution said Titus Taduo, a 33-year-old worker in South China Church. We know Jesus is winning the battle. The Word of God says that we are walking the same road that Jesus walked. We have also seen throughout church history that others have been persecuted by their government and by other people. Through the persecution, we feel God's love and His grace. The church in China is standing up in the face of persecution, refusing to bow to government attacks. In the West, we do not usually face police arrests or beatings, but still we must stand up. We forget that Christians who were executed in the Roman Colosseum were not asked to stop worshiping Jesus. They could keep Jesus as long as they worshiped Caesar first. Today, because of religious freedom in the West and our vital traditional churches, we are not yet forced to make such state church decisions. Yet all Christians must witness within their culture, even though in some locations they will be mocked as uneducated, unrefined, intolerant barbarians. Like believers in the book of Acts, we must evangelize and teach our children the gospel. We must choose to walk the road that Jesus walked, though it may not be a path of earthly comfort. China's courageous, barbaric Christians remind us that we are in a spiritual war for souls. And that is indeed true.
We are in a spiritual war for souls. Jesus says it so very plainly here in John 15. This is his last night with his disciples. He's alone with them, as you remember, in the upper room. Judas has already been dismissed, and he's gone off to get the Roman and Jewish authorities to come back with a cohort of Roman soldiers to arrest Christ and to take him off for execution. The the time is short, a matter of, of less than an hour before the soldiers will arrive back. And so Jesus is using the remaining most precious time to instruct these fragile believers to prepare them for what's going to come upon them when they see him taken away and scourged and mocked and crucified before their eyes. What would he say? How would he prepare his band to respond to such hatred, such animosity, such opposition? Let's read the text beginning in verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do, because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Hated without a cause. There are three facts in this section of John's Gospel that we have been trying to draw out and emphasize for you regarding the world's hatred of Christianity so that we will be diligent to pursue Christ and courageous in our proclamation of Him in spite of opposition, in spite of hostility towards us. The words that Jesus spoke originally to these 11 men came true. The hostility came true for them. It says that everyone who kills you, they were killed. They were martyred for their faith. All but the Apostle John himself. And as those that stand in a long line of descendants from them, the apostolic legacy, the the hatred originally to Christ, then to them, beloved, comes to us too. The closer we represent Christ, the more virulent the world's opposition to us will be. How will Jesus prepare them? How will Jesus prepare them to to stand firm? And and what is it that they are supposed to do? What shall be their response to the opposition? And that's what we want to address this morning. Two weeks, over the last two weeks, we've established the, the reality of this hatred and hostility. We've talked about the reasons for it. It's there on your handout. Now what we want to address is, is our response. How will Jesus prepare them and what shall be our response? It's interesting, Jesus' 
preparation for them here is, is, the, is in the fact that He will not leave them as orphans. He's not going to leave them alone. He's not going to leave them unattended, but He's going to send someone. Parakletos, the helper. He will send Him to help them to respond in a godly manner to the hostility that's going to come upon them. You know, historically, the church has responded in one of two inappropriate ways many times to the hostility of the world. All too often when the world is hostile to the church, the church responds inappropriately in one of these two ways, one of which is to fight back, to become militant, to respond through armies or political pressure. We merely need to reflect on issues like the Crusades, for example, to, be, to see these inappropriate expressions of the church's response to persecution and hostility. Even a casual reading of church history can show you time and time again how, how the church has responded inappropriately by being militant back, by fighting back. But other times in her history, the church has not fought back. Instead, they've withdrawn. They've pulled into their own shell. They've withdrawn from the world. They've cut the world off. They've, they've said the world is, is in the clutches of the evil one and we want no part of it. And so we will withdraw physically into ourselves. We will put up walls around us. The whole history of the monastic movement, the 3rd through the 6th century, where the thing to do was to retreat away into little communes, little communities, and cut yourself off from the world. But we are called to be in the world, aren't we? In the world, yet not of the world. So it's inappropriate to respond by fighting back. It's inappropriate to respond by withdrawal. So what is the correct response in the face of hostility? What would Christ have us do? Well, we don't have to guess. Because the answer is right here for us this morning in this text. There is a twofold response that Jesus lays out for his disciples by extension for us, right here in this text before us. The first of that twofold response is what I'm calling spiritual preparation. What do we do in the face of hostility? We prepare spiritually to face it. Spiritual preparation. Look down to chapter 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. The greatest danger, you know, that faces the church, the greatest danger that faces Christians individually is not death. We are not to fear the death of the body, are we? He who can kill the body and kill the body only. Jesus says we're not to fear him. We're to fear the one who can kill body and soul. It is apostasy, beloved, that is the greatest danger for the believer. It is the falling away from Christ in the face of opposition that is our greatest danger. They may kill us, but that's all they can do. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It is falling back. It is apostasy. It is the denial of Jesus Christ in the face of hostility that represents our greatest threat and our greatest danger. And so we must be spiritually prepared for when it comes so that it doesn't sneak up on us and trap us. Again, look at verse 1, chapter 16. These things... Jesus says. He's, he's referring to the, to the hatred of the world that he's just elaborated in the verses preceding. These things I've spoken to you. I've told you about this opposition ahead of time so that you will be kept from stumbling. The reason Jesus told them and the reason that he is telling us is so that we do not stumble as it's translated here. Scandalizo is the Greek verb. We get the, the noun scandalon from it. 
Scandalon is a, is a notoriously difficult word to bring into the English. It's, it's brought here as a stumbling or a stumbling stone, but that's probably not the best way to, to render it in the English. Actually, what a scandalon was was a, a bait stick in a trap. It would be the place in a snare where they would, the pointed stick where they would place the bait, and when the animal would come into the trap and try to get the bait from the, from the stick, the, the snare would go off and they would be entrapped. They would be surprised. They would be overcome. They would be caught unaware. That's the kind of concept behind a scandalon. And so what Jesus is really warning them here is that I've told you about the hatred so that you are not taken by surprise when it comes. So that you are not caught unawares. So that it doesn't go off on you when you least expect it. That's the point. And the result of it going off is that you abandon your faith. By the way, scandalizo is used only one other time in John's Gospel. Over in chapter 6, verse 61, you can take a look at it here. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has spoken to them about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me. You remember that. And, his decide, and the, the crowd that's following him grumbles against him about this kind of a statement. Verse 60, they, many of therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And the idea behind that is that this is not hard to understand. This is hard to tolerate. We have no toleration for this kind of statement. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Have you got no part in me? And so Jesus, verse 61, conscious, it says, that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to, scandalizo, to stumble? That is to fall away from the faith. And if you follow through the rest of the chapter, they do exactly that. They abandon him. They leave him. And he turns to the twelve at that point and he says, are you going to go away too? Peter says, where else would we go? You were the only one with the words of eternal life. So the concept here, at least in John's Gospel, with this word, is not so much that you're going to trip over the opposition, is that the opposition is going to sneak up on you and it's going to grab you by surprise. The hatred is going to come when you least expect it. It's going to come out of nowhere. And when it grabs you, it's going to knock you over. If you're not careful. It could knock you off your, away from the faith. So Jesus warns them. You know, we, uh, we tend to recount church history in a romantic sense, don't we? We think about the martyrs that have gone before us and we say how brave they were. They stood firm in the Colosseum. The lions would come and they wouldn't renounce their faith. They'd stand firm and many did. But beloved, not all. Not all stood firm to the end. There were many who fell away. There were many who were overcome by the pressure of the opposition. There were many who renounced Jesus Christ to save their own lives. Beloved, they were people just like you and I. Some strong, some weak. Some firmly attached to Christ, some loosely attached to Christ. Some in it because they understand that it is only through Jesus Christ that there is redemption for our soul. Others attached because of what they might get out of it in a temporal sense. There were people just like us. We know for a fact that people fell away. I mean, John himself, the apostle here in his first epistle, 1 John 2, verse 19, he, he addresses the very fact. Listen to what he said. He said, they went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. John, writing at the end of his life, says they, they've abandoned us. They've, they've fallen away from the faith. And what they've done, proved by their falling away is that they were never really part of the family of God to begin with. Strong exhortation. 
Strong exhortation. Stand firm. Make your salvation sure. Opposition is coming. Don't let it catch you unaware and don't let it knock you over. Peter. In 1 Peter, go ahead and take a look at this. 1 Peter chapter 4. He picks up the same theme. He's also writing now at the end of his life. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled by the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Verse 19, Therefore let all those also who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't, don't let it sneak up on you unawares when the suffering and the persecution is going to come to you. It came to Christ. It will come to you. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. But wait a minute, Pastor. I thought that when God does a work of regeneration in my heart and through the, the convicting, convincing ministry of the Holy Spirit of God and I attach myself by faith to Christ, that I am secure in my salvation. Isn't that what Paul teaches in Romans 8? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you have made a faith commitment to Jesus Christ and trusted yourself to Him, you are eternally secure in your salvation. But, beloved, the Bible is full of warnings to hang on. It's both. It is the theological work of God in Christ that secures you to Him. Yet at the same time, God uses means. And the means which he has, in, he has ordained here is to repeatedly warn the church to hang on tight. Hang on tight. If you speak to a crowd this size, you never know, do you? Who's hanging on and who isn't? Hang on, he says. Be prepared. Notice here in John 16, verse 4, Jesus comes back to the theme again. These things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Twice now, in four verses, he has warned them. It's coming. Be aware. Hang on. Here he says, listen, when it comes on you, remember I told you it was coming. I told you it was coming. And when it does come, remember that I told you. Then you will not only not be surprised, you will be strengthened because you will know that my word has come true. Notice again, verse 4, it says that when their hour comes, their hour, that refers to the time when the enemies of Christ appear to triumph. Yet we know that in the midst of their apparent triumph, it's, it's really the triumph of God. I mean, we see it right here in this text, verse 25, chapter 15, when Jesus says that, that they have done this, they've hated me in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus sees it, the hatred of him, the, the opposition to him, as just a simple fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. And so he's warning his disciples in the same way, saying, Listen, it's coming. 
Don't be surprised. And when it gets here, then you know that what I have told you was true. Then you know who I am. This whole concept, by the way, of the glory of God coming out of the, out of the darkest acts of man, it just flows through the Bible, doesn't it? I mean, there is no greater illustration of it than in the crucifixion of Christ himself. The darkest, most vile, most wicked deed possible in this universe. The crucifixion of the very Son of God is the means by which God redeems humanity. That which looks like defeat is the very, very crux of the victory. So, I've told you, when their hour comes, it's really your victory. Tertullian said it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. The more they extinguish, the faster the church grows. I read you about the Chinese church when we began. You realize when the communists came to power and they drove out the church out of China, people wrung their hands. What will happen to the church of God in China? Will it be exterminated under communist oppression? Oh, when believers were finally allowed back in to observe what had happened, the church had not been extinguished. In fact, the church had grown. And it continues to grow under persecution there. That which the enemies of God intend to wipe out his church becomes that by which God builds his church. William Tyndale, the English... Bible translator, familiar with his life, he, he lived it on the run, at least the ends of his life, his adult life, as he was translating the, the Bible into the English language, into the common tongue, so that the English plowboy could have the Word of God in his own tongue. And he was constantly on the run as he was being hounded for his life. And he was reminded by a friend one time that, that they're going to kill you, they're trying to get you, and they're going to kill you when they get you. And and he responded to them, quote, I, I never expected anything different. See, Tyndale understood that if this is what they did to Christ, if they do this to the master, what do you think they're going to do to the slave? You have to be prepared, spiritually prepared. You know, when you, uh, when you play football, you have a game once a week, don't you? You practice all week long getting ready for that game. And then normally sometime, either early in the week of the practice or later before the game, different coaches do it different ways, they have what they call film time. Where you will sit there and you will watch films of your opponents so that you will be prepared when you go onto the playing field to, to do battle with them. It's just preparation. And so Jesus is giving spiritual preparation. I was thinking about this this week a little bit, and I asked myself the question, how do I prepare spiritually? I mean, it's one thing to understand what Jesus has said here in verses 1 and 4 of chapter 16, that you need to be spiritually prepared. But how do I spiritually prepare for this persecution that I know is going to come? So I jotted some things down. So let me, let me share them with you and, and uh, say to you, if you come up with more, I'd be most interested in hearing about them. Well, the first one that I came up with was to pray for grace and strength. The first way to be spiritually prepared for the conflict that is sure to come is to, be, is to pray for grace and strength. For example, in Matthew 26 and in verse 41... They were in the garden, you remember this, and Jesus is off praying. And what do you think Jesus is praying about? He's praying for grace and strength to face the cross. And he's asking his disciples to pray with him. Of course, their eyes are heavy and they're having trouble, like most of us would, stringing together, you know, a prayer. They're falling asleep. And Jesus comes upon them. In verse 41 of Matthew 26, he says, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the first way to prepare spiritually is to pray for the grace and strength of God to stand firm when it comes, when the trials come. Second is to pursue intimacy with Christ. 
to pursue intimacy with Christ. And, for example, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says that, that his desire is that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in so that, or in order that, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, pursue intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's a way, another way to be prepared for opposition. Pursue intimacy. Third, practice self-denial. Practice self-denial. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27 Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, I practice self-denial so that I am not disqualified myself. Disqualified how, Paul? By falling away. So practicing self-denial. Practice saying no to yourself. So that if the, if the test comes to you where it's, it's Jesus Christ or loss of something, a possession or, or your body, you can say yes to Christ and no to that. Practice self-denial. Fourth, push yourself to witness for Christ. Push yourself to witness for Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, there are just all these opportunities to speak for Christ and we let them slide by, don't we? We just let it go by. We feel bad about it. We regret it happening, but we, but we let it get away from us. And so I think one way to get ready for the persecution, the opposition to your faith in Christ is to push yourself to speak for Christ now. For example, in Acts 17, verses 16 and 17, this is Paul's second missionary journey. And everywhere he's gone, there's been opposition. He has been stoned. He's been driven out of town. He's gone from one city to the next, and it's been nothing but opposition. And so he gets down to Athens in verse 16 of Acts 17. And it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he's walking around in Athens, and he's getting all worked up about their idolatry. But it would have been easy for the Apostle Paul to say, I'm by myself. I've been run out of every other place I've gone. And in fact, a couple of them I've ended up being thrown in jail and beat, I will just be provoked inside and not let it show outside. Verse 17, being provoked, so he was reasoning. Do you see that? He pushed himself to speak for Christ. Fifth way to prepare is to plant the flag to plant the flag at work or school. What do I mean by that? That is to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ right up front. If you're going to a new job, the the first thing you can do, as soon as you can do it, is you, you identify yourself as a follower of Christ. Plant the flag. You go to school, you do it the first thing, in the first day of school, you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. That eliminates you being the secret disciple mentality, right? I'll just keep it to myself and eventually they'll see my good works and then they'll ask me. No, they won't. No, they won't. They'll just attribute it to some other reason. You're such a nice guy. Plant the flag right up front. Then the world, you put the world on notice that you're a follower of Christ. And then you have to live like who you've said you are. See, now when you're faced with an ethical decision, you've already told the world you're a follower of Christ, so it's real easy what decision you have to make. You have to follow through. So plant the flag. Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do not be ashamed. Plant your flag. Six, purpose in advance to obey God regardless of the consequences. So up front, purpose in your mind that you are going to obey God regardless of what it costs you. Don't wait till the decision comes 
And you're faced with the ethical dilemma at that moment. Do I speak for Christ or don't I? Do I do this or don't I? Decide up front that I will only do what glorifies God and I will not do what doesn't glorify God. Make your decision up front and then just implement. Joshua says, Joshua 24, 15, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served, which are beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? So we purposed in advance to obey God. Seventh, pick up and read biographies of faithful believers from the past. Pick up and read biographies of faithful believers from the past. Why? Because you will be encouraged by those who have gone before you. When, you. when you see their life of faith, that will encourage you to imitate them. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what is the great cloud of witnesses? It's all the people of the hall of faith from Hebrews 11 that he has just characterized or are cataloged for us. So since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Pick up and read biographies. Eight. Praise the glories of heaven with your family and your friends. Praise the glories of heaven with your family and your friends. What do I mean by that? I mean, talk about heaven. We don't talk enough about heaven. We talk a lot about earth. We talk a lot about what's going on here, what our plans are for tomorrow and next week and our dreams for next year and 10 years from now and so forth. But we don't talk enough about our real citizenship, right? The Bible says we're aliens. We're passing through. We're strangers. This life is temporal. We are citizens of the life to come. And so we need to spend more time talking to each other and to our children and to our friends about where we're going. That will encourage us in the face of opposition. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, this is an amazing verse, he says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the guy was, was flogged, it says, five times by the Jews and then all the other things that came upon him. And he, he says, momentary light affliction. I mean, they were stoned and left for dead. But compared to where he was going and the weight of glory, it was a momentary light affliction. It gives perspective. So praise the glories of heaven with your friends and your families. And finally, number nine, provoke one another at church to love and good deeds. I won't read it to you. That's Hebrews 10, verse 24. It's translated in the New American Standard, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, but it could easily be translated provoke. So provoke one another to love and good deeds. These are ways to prepare for persecution before it gets here. This is like uh, two-a-days in football practice. You do this now so that on game day you're not laying there on the sidelines, you know, making an offering to whatever. Work hard now. Work hard now. So the first way to get ready is the spiritual preparation. Or, or second, second response to the hostility is spirit-empowered witness. For that, we go back to John 15, verses 26 and 27. Spirit-empowered witness. Verse 26, John 15, 
Jesus says, when the helper, the parakletos, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. So first we prepare spiritually, then we make spirit-empowered witness. That is our response to the hatred of the world. It's not to fight back. It's not to organize an army. It's not to make yourselves a political action group. It's not to run away into our little Christian ghetto and put the walls up around us. It is to prepare and it is to preach. I wish I thought of that earlier. That would have been a good outline. It's to prepare and it is to preach. It is to witness the truth of Christ. Notice again here verse 26. When the helper comes, earlier in the evening, Jesus has said he's being sent to you, right? I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter, the Holy Spirit, Parakletos. He will be sent to you. And why will he be sent? He will be sent to continue my ministry among you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit of God is to continue the ministry that Christ began in his public walking of this earth. Notice what Jesus says, I will send him to you. Do you see that? From the Father. That is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. That's just another another name for the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of truth. Boy, does this contradict the world in which we live. We live in a world that hates truth. We live in a world that's allergic to truth. We live in a world that enshrines relativism, postmodernism, the notion that there can be conflicting realities and that's okay. You believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and it doesn't matter if they conflict and maybe I'll take a little of this and a little of that and nail it all together and build my own philosophical shack. Postmodernism. And we bring a message that is so diametrically opposed. Right? We bring a message of absolute truth to a world that is allergic to truth. To a world that's in love with lies. You know, truth is, the, is an essential aspect of the character of God. Do you know that? I mean, the Holy Spirit right here, he's called the spirit of truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Isaiah 65, verse 16, two times there, the Father calls himself the God of truth. It is truth that God is interested in. It is is his character, the God who cannot lie. And so we, as the people of God, are people of truth. So what is our spirit-empowered witness? What is the message that we preach? It is a message of truth into a world that does not want to hear it. It's like the little boy who's sick and his mother goes and gets medicine for him. And it's the most awful, disgusting-tasting medicine you've ever had. And the little boy doesn't want the medicine, does he? But he has to take it. So his mother, you know, pinches his nose and pours it down. You know, because that's what he needs. The world is addicted to lies. They don't want to hear the truth. That's the last thing they want to hear is absolute truth. And that's what God deals in. So we bring it to him anyway. That's what the the ministry of the Spirit of God is. Look again, verse 26. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, look, He will bear witness of me. What What is the ministry and function and role of the Holy Spirit in this context? It is to speak the truth about Jesus Christ to a world who could not care less. And it's not just that they're apathetic, it's that they're hostile against it. Verse 27, and you, 
will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. The church cannot be passive. We, we can't just sit back and say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit will, will you know, preach the truth. He will bring truth to bear on the world, and, and we don't have to be involved in that messy stuff. No, it's a joint effort here, right? He will bear witness, verse 27, you will bear witness. By the way, it's really a concept of together we will bear witness. We will bear witness together. It is a spirit-empowered witness. One biblical commentator said, The Spirit does not teach the facts of history. He reveals their meaning. I kind of like that. The Holy Spirit does not teach the facts of history. He reveals their meaning. We teach the facts of history. It is the Spirit who reveals their meaning. So it is a, it is a single witness to the world. And let me think about it this way. The apostles are the sole link between Jesus Christ and us. It is through the apostles that we are linked to Christ. Jesus gave them the truth and sent them out. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I, what? Commanded you. I've given you the truth. You now go and you bring other people to the truth. And you just keep widening the party. The family just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And everyone attaches themselves to the apostolic truth. Why do I say that they are the link between us and Christ? Because you are holding on your lap their message. Their message. How could they go into all the world, by the way? They couldn't. Not physically. They went as far as they could physically go and then they went into all the world ultimately through the Word of God, through their inscripturated testimony of who Jesus Christ is. By the way, they were exceedingly self-conscious of this reality. Go with me to... Uh, I'm going to have to do this quickly, but that's all right. Go to uh, 1 John 1. First John 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with who? With us. You notice it doesn't say that you may have fellowship with Jesus Christ. It is that you may have fellowship with us. We are already in fellowship with Christ. When you come to us, then you enter into the fellowship. That you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus, His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we what? Look at it. These things we what? We write so that our joy may be made complete. Why did they write the Bible? They wrote the Bible so that all the world could come into fellowship with them because they are in fellowship with Christ. As we join them, we enter into fellowship with Christ. Beloved, the church is inherently a missionary enterprise. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always one generation from extinction. We go out, we prepare spiritually ahead of time, and then we go out with a spirit-empowered message, the message that was given by Christ to the apostles through them to us. 
and we just take it out. To do an impossible task. To bring relief to a world that doesn't want it. Paul says it this way, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If it weren't for the Spirit of God working, there would be no hope for this message. But it is that cooperative effort the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the people, together changes lives. If you've not committed your life to Jesus Christ this morning, if you have not humbled your heart before God and acknowledged your alienation from Him, your self-will, your violation of His law, and on the authority of the Scripture, I invite, yea, I command you, to repent of your sin and to embrace Christ by faith. We will have some folks standing over here by that cross after the service. If you want to talk more about these things, you come there and they'll open the Word of God with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are not brave people. We are people who are soft because we have lived a life of luxury. Lord God, we confess we've squandered opportunities that you have given to us. We've shown ourselves cowardly in the face of opposition, real and imagined. But we also understand, our Father, that you are a God of second chances. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, even these sins are forgiven. We confess, we acknowledge our guilt, we ask for your redemption, your pardon. We pray for strength to fulfill the task for which you have appointed to us. To bring a spirit-empowered message of deliverance to a world that hates you. In Jesus' name.